Hello, and thank you for tuning into Answers from the Lab, where we share Mayo Clinic knowledge and advancements on the state of testing and science from laboratory leaders and the people who are making it happen behind the scenes. I'm Dr. Bobby Pritt, Chair of the Division of Clinical Microbiology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Today, we're joined by my colleague, Dr. Ellie Thiel, a frequent guest on this podcast. Dr. Thiel is the director of the Infectious Diseases Serology Laboratory, and she's also in charge of testing for sexually transmitted infections. And that's very relevant because today we're going to be talking about an age-old sexually transmitted disease called syphilis, which I'm sure everyone has heard of. I did a little reading about this because I love the history of infectious diseases. It sounds like the first recorded outbreak that we know of at this time was in the 1400s in Italy. And of course, back then it was common to blame it on another country, usually your rival. So it was called the French disease and the English disease. And it turns out that there were many historical figures suspected of having syphilis, including Ivan the Terrible and Al Capone, the famous gangster, which is kind of interesting. So we'll talk a little bit about syphilis. Dr. Thiel, let's start off by just saying, tell us what syphilis is and what causes syphilis. Yeah, so syphilis is a bacterial infection. It's caused by the spirochete treponema pallidum. It's a sexually transmitted infection, primarily sexually transmitted, but can also be transmitted in utero, vertically, mm-hmm. from an infected mom to baby. It's a historic disease, like you said, but we still struggle with it today. And actually, it's it's increasing in incidence. Well, I think that's a really important point. And it's a terrible, debilitating disease, as we both know. Again, a little bit of history, it often begins with skin manifestations, and it was so common early on that dermatology started as the field of dermatology and syphilology. But of course, it then goes to, if untreated, it spreads to other organs, including, in rare cases, the eye. So this Mm -hmm. is coming up because there was a recent outbreak of cases of ocular syphilis. What was uh, remarkable about those cases? So this is an outbreak that occurred in Michigan earlier in 2022, I believe, Mm -hmm. but there were five women that presented with ocular syphilis kind of in different stages of, of their syphilis infection. And through testing and workups, they basically identified a single man that they all had connections with had led to their their infections. They were all treated and recovered, including the individual that kind of started the outbreak. So, so that was good. What was remarkable, though, is the fact that all five of them had ocular symptoms, and that's a fairly rare occurrence. So five in a span of a few months was surprising. And so the CDC and others are thinking that this particular strain of syphilis has more of a tropism for the eye or something special about it. Um, Unfortunately, they didn't have enough material to do whole genome sequencing or any other studies to really see what's different about this particular strain than most other strains that do not lead to ocular syphilis. So it was an interesting outbreak. Yeah, really, it was. And I guess the good news is that all these individuals were treated. We don't know about the the case that led to this and how it evolved, but hopefully people are all treated and not spreading this particular strain. But we know that syphilis is still a problem, as you mentioned, and there is a fair amount of syphilis. Do you want to tell us what we're seeing today with syphilis cases? 
Yeah, so it's actually quite concerning. There's been a dramatic rise in cases uh, from 2020 to today, both primary and secondary syphilis cases across almost all age groups, genders, sexual orientations. Nobody seems to be immune to this rise in syphilis cases. But perhaps what is a little bit more concerning and worrying is the dramatic rise in cases of congenital syphilis. So for some perspective, in 2012, there were less than 500 cases of congenital syphilis in the U.S., and in 2021, there were close to 2,500 cases of congenital syphilis. So rates of congenital syphilis and deaths related to congenital syphilis have really skyrocketed over the last few years. Wow. Yeah, in medical school, we teach our medical students about the very conventional, manif- traditional or well-described manifestations of congenital syphilis, but then we didn't see them for so long. I don't know if we even still teach them uniformly across medical schools in, mm-hmm. in the United States, at least, but yeah. some of the things like the saddle nose deformity, those used to be very classic, and I, I, I'm guessing we're going to start seeing these again if the mm-hmm. rates don't get under control. Yeah, a group out of England, actually, because this isn't a U.S. issue, this is a global issue, and a group out of England recently proposed that the classic acronym that we use to remember causes of congenital disease, TORCH, you know, Mm -hmm. Toxoplasma, CMV, HSV, they actually proposed that that acronym be changed to SCORCH, where we specifically pull out syphilis as the S, so the first letter in that acronym, again, because it is such a problem and it's a worldwide issue. Yeah, Um, that's a really good point. I thought TORCH, the O, stood for other, and that's where syphilis got lumped in. But I hear you're saying that it's now so important. We really should call it out and have it be one of the letters of the acronym, so SCORCH. SCORCH. Yeah, that might help. Catches. (laughs) Okay. Well, and hopefully not catching with syphilis itself, no, but yes, let's catch not on. Not <laughs> so let's talk about how we diagnose syphilis, especially in the laboratory for confirmatory testing or screening. Diagnosis of syphilis continues to rely almost entirely on serologic testing. So looking for an immune response to the uh, organism in both Treponemal-specific antibody tests are used, so looking for IgM and IgG antibodies specifically against treponema pallidum, so we have many assays that look for that. But we then also combine that with non-treponemal tests that look for antibodies to cardiolipin and other lipid components that are released from host cells that are damaged by the organism. So we use a combination of tests because unfortunately no single test is good enough, so sensitive enough and specific enough to provide the diagnosis. Other ways to diagnose histopathology is also not infrequently used, but You know, molecular testing, unfortunately, is just not quite sensitive enough, um, not quite good enough. There's really a limited time frame, a limited number of sources and situations in which molecular testing is the test of choice. That being said, we are hearing and seeing that an increasing number of diagnostic in vitro diagnostic manufacturers will be and are developing PCR assays for syphilis specifically to detect syphilis in those primary shanker lesions. Mm. 
when at which point the infection is so early that an immune response wouldn't be detected. So I anticipate seeing more PCRs in the future, but right now we still rely on serology. That does make sense because early on, you may not have that positive serologic result and say you have that shanker, that classic primary lesion of primary syphilis. And the way that we used to diagnose it would be to take a swab from the lesion and then look at it under a dark field mm. microscope and look for modal spirochetes, which is a fascinating test and analysis, but most physicians don't have a dark field microscope in no. their office. And really a lot of physicians don't have microscopes in their offices at all, even a standard light microscope. So clearly there's a need for something in that particular stage. There now is. it's changed a little though, right? With the serologic testing primary yeah. versus secondary or the so-called reverse algorithm. And you yeah. were one of the first labs that I believe adopted the new reverse algorithm. Can you we tell were. us about that? Yep. So classically, you start with the traditional syphilis screening algorithm, which starts with a non-treponemal test, like an RPR or a VDRL in some cases. And then if that's reactive, the sample is reflexed and tested by a treponemal-specific assay. And so if both are positive, you have your diagnosis. The challenge with that approach is that the RPRs, the VDRL, non-treponemal assays are very manual. So not conducive to use in a high volume, high testing volume laboratory. Also, those tests are not quite as sensitive during primary stage of, of syphilis. So you could be missing a significant number of cases. And so in the early 2000s, kind of towards 2010 or so, the CDC and others came out with the reverse syphilis testing algorithm, where you actually start with a treponemal-based assay specific to the organism. And if that's reactive, you then reflex to a non-treponemal test like your RPR or VDRL. And if that's negative, so discordant with your initial results, you then do a third test, which is another treponemal specific test. So it's a little bit more complicated. Uh, it took a lot of education to you know, explain why we're now going from two tests to three tests. But the advantages of the reverse algorithm are that we can automate the first step, you know, using EIAs or chemiluminescent assays. And then again, using those tests allows us to have a higher sensitivity and pick up a lot more of those earlier primary cases compared to using the traditional algorithm. But, well, that makes um, sense if your treponemal specific test is more sensitive and that's your screening assay. That's exactly how you want it. And then you confirm. Now there are some advantages and disadvantages of both. And some people may be asking why even do a non-treponemal test, but that could be helpful for uh, monitoring treatment response. I don't know if you want to touch on that. Right. Yeah. So the RPR as a standalone test, after you start treatment, it will decline fairly rapidly. And so the recommendations indicate, you know, you want to look for a fourfold drop in titers over time, and that would indicate response to therapy. There are some patients that remain RPR positive for life, but they're usually low titers. They've responded to treatment. They're just going to stay RPR positive. But in general, RPR is used to monitor response to therapy. So there's still a use, even though I think of that test as a very old, rather crude test, it since is. it's not specific to treponemes. 
I don't know exactly when the RPR test was developed, but the VDRL test, which also is a non-treponemal test, as we mm -hmm. talked about, it's used for testing spinal fluid to look for neuroinvasive syphilis. That test was first developed and put into use in 1906. Wow. It was so, one of the first tests actually used at Mayo Clinic once our laboratories were established here at Mayo in the early 1900s. The VDRL yeah. was one of the first tests brought into the laboratory. And we are still using it today. So <laughs> I can't do the math, but that's over 100 years. <laughs> <laughs> well, good to know that we still have, we have other alternatives. We have new algorithms and maybe even yes. molecular for certain uses in the future. That's right. Well, this is a great discussion, a fun bit of history and important information about a, a really important disease that we should all be thinking about. Yes. So thanks, Dr. Thiel, for all the great information. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in to Answers from the Lab. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to tune in every Thursday and every other Tuesday. <laughs>